praise the only true God who brings justice to the world and will protect his people. My son Ezra has a, has a toy cell phone that just has Christmas songs on it. So you press a button, there's a little picture of a reindeer. Or this week I was thinking, well, maybe I should take out the batteries and wait for closer to Christmas time. But you may have heard of another term or another thought called Christmas in July. I know it's still June, and it's Father's Day and Liliaba, but Christmas in July is coming. So I'm kind of joking, I really don't celebrate Christmas in July. After doing a little research, it seems like there are people who do. The legend of how Christmas in July began is kind of hard to fact check. It's, but according to the magazine Southern Living, which I don't think many people go there for news, but Christmas in July began at a girls camp in 1933 called Keystone Camp in the state of North Carolina in the US. It involved a celebration at summer camp with fake snow and Santa Claus, a gift exchange, and Christmas carols. And then there was a 1940 movie called Christmas in July, which apparently had little or nothing to do with Christmas, but it popularized the phrase. And before long, others were taking advantage of this idea, including retailers who would be happy if you did your Christmas shopping early. And the Hallmark Channel also has taken advantage of this idea showing Christmas movies in July. Now, pretty much all that I just shared to you pro with you probably doesn't really motivate you that much to start celebrating Christmas in July. Uh, I would agree with your thought. If we're celebrating Jesus' birth, it makes sense to celebrate it once a year and all throughout the year. But uh, a birthday and a half birthday, I have a little hard time understanding the reason for I have no wa problem watching a, a Christmas movie in July, but when it seems like a holiday is becoming more and more commercialized, it feels less and less like a holiday. That's why no one's going around saying, Liu Yao Ba, Kwai Le. For Christians, remembering that Jesus came to this earth, that he took on flesh and tabernacled among us, is something to remember not only on December 25th or a random date in July, but it's a truth that we want to continue to think about all through the year. Jesus has come. The King has come. When we think on Jesus' birth, we think on the stories of his birth in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. But I think we may be surprised how early on in the Bible, how the Bible points to Christmas. Two Sundays ago, we began a series in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 1 Samuel. In the first chapter, we were introduced to Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, and his other wife, Penina. Penina had children, Hannah did not. We heard of Penina and Hannah acting as rivals, with Penina po provoking Hannah to tears. This went on year by year until Hannah, in her deep distress, prayed 
to the Lord for a song. Out of her grief, Hannah poured out her soul to God. She promised that, that if the Lord gave her a son, she would give him right back to the Lord. And God answered Hannah's prayer. God gave Hannah a son. And after nursing him until he could be separated from his mother, Hannah was ready to keep her promise. So imagine the scene. It's at the end of Samuel chapter 1. Hannah has brought little Samuel back to the place where she poured out her heart before the Lord. She tells Eli the priest, this is the child who I prayed for. There's no sign of reluctance on the part of Hannah to, to give up her child to serve the Lord. And it's in this context that Hannah prays another prayer. When she prayed to the Lord for the son, we don't know the details, exactly what words she used when she prayed. But here, the scriptures record for us Hannah's prayer of praise. We can see that it's structured like a poem or a song. You can imagine her singing it out to God. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you haven't already. You can also look at your bulletin. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 11. And as I read, consider what this prayer tells us about God's character and how God acts. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So before we jump into the content of this prayer, let's first continue to consider the context. First Samuel introduces us to Hannah, and we know that Hannah is leaving her son to serve under Eli. And so right after Hannah finishes her prayer, we read verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. The narrative of 1st and 2nd Samuel shifts here from Hannah to the boy Samuel. And Samuel's story will weave into the narrative of these two books as we read of wars and kings and kingdoms. 1st and 2nd Samuel are one big story in the grand, grander story of the Bible. They begin and end with a song of praise. 1st Samuel begins with Hannah's song of praise that foreshadows many of the themes that will come up in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And 2 Samuel, towards the end of 2 Samuel, is David's song of deliverance 
in 2 Samuel 22, which looks back on what God did in the story. If you study both songs closely, you'll find related words and related themes. So I would encourage you, when you have further chance to study First and Second Samuel, to, to consider how Hannah's song and David's song help you understand the themes of the, the, these two books as a whole. So let's look back again at our passage. And as we look back at the passage, I would like to sum up what I hope that you can take away from this sermon in one sentence. Praise the only true God who brings justice to the world and will protect his people. Praise the only true God who brings justice to the world and will protect his people. As we continue to walk through Hannah's prayer, we'll work through this sentence. So first, praise the only true God. Praise the only true God. It's in this first point, we'll look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 reads, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my salvation. Notice the possessive pronouns in these two sentences. My heart, my strength, my mouth, my enemies. This is a, a deeply personal prayer of praise. Hannah's heart is soaring in praise to God. God has made himself unmistakably worthy of all praise in Hannah's life. Hannah's every reason to rejoice. Why? Because God has saved her. And so she rejoices in her salvation. Her mouth derides her enemies. Now when we think of Hannah deriding her enemies, this isn't going to mean provoking them like Penina provoked Hannah. Hannah isn't using her prayer as a way to, to get back at her rival wife. It couldn't come from this kind of attitude because Hannah is praying out of an attitude of rejoicing and praising God. In one of the Psalms, this word for deride is translated as relief, and that may be a better understanding of the word. Hannah is relieved from her enemies. She has no reason to be concerned with them. She has no reason to fear them. Penina's words cannot sting Hannah now. But notice as well that it says enemies plural and not enemies enemies singular. This song of praise begins in a deeply personal way, but in chapter 1, we don't read of Hannah having more than one enemy. Chapter 1 describes her rival as Penina. But this song is not just simply Hannah praising God solo. This is a God-inspired song of praise meant for the people of Israel to sing, to pray. Hannah sings on behalf of God's people. And God's people have more than one enemy. Hannah is also praising God for much more than giving her a son. She says she rejoices in, in God's salvation. Hannah's story may seem relatively ordinary in some ways. Her situation and her prayers are relatable. But Hannah's story of God's care for her is a picture to who God is and, and all that God has done. You can consider it in your own lives of what God has done. Perhaps at first, these ways that God has cared for you seem ordinary as well. 
but we can remember God's wisdom and how he's provided. We can remember God's compassion and how he's led. Consider how even some of the things in our own lives point to a God who is in control and who cares for his people. So let's be people who are quick to praise God. When God does answer prayer, let's celebrate by praising him. And consider what God's actions tell us about who God is. We're not simply thanking God for what he has done. We're considering and coming to a greater understanding of God's character as we observe what God has done and is doing. God has brought about joy in Hannah's life. He has blessed Hannah in ways that clearly show his compassion. And Hannah overflows in praise to God. So do we exalt God in this way? Do we allow our emotions to sing out in response to what God has done? What a joy it is for us to praise God together on Sundays, being both led in prayers that praise God and also through praising God together in song. May the prayers that we pray, the songs that we sing on Sunday also help us praise God in prayer and in song throughout the week. Are we quick to praise God when we see him at work in our lives? And think on how do we praise God in our own prayer lives? I might not know the specifics of how each person in this room, how God might be working in your life. But each of us in this room who is a follower of Christ can rejoice in our salvation. We even have more reason to praise God than Hannah did, for we have a fuller understanding of what it means that God saved us. So it is considering that God saved you cause you to burst out in praise to God. Just considering that God has saved you, lift your eyes away from any enemies you might have, from anyone who may seek to harm you or put you down, from the devil's evil schemes, and bring your eyes back to God. Because of what God has done in your life, you have no reason to fear. Brothers and sisters, we have every reason to praise God. Let's be people who are quick to praise him. Whether it's in songs of praise, prayers of praise, let us grow in using our words to praise God, not just on Sunday, but all throughout the week. So when we're reminded of God's creation, do we praise God for being the creator? When we're reminded of God's compassion, do we praise God for he is the gracious and compassionate God? In verse 2, Hannah moves from focusing on her response to God's kindness to her to focusing on the character of God himself. She praises God, saying, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no one like our God. Notice the pronouns again. Hannah prays directly to God, saying, There is none besides you. And Hannah is not only praying on behalf of herself, she's praying on behalf of the people of God. This is our God. So let's be people who praise God for being the only true God. Let's be people who praise God for his character. God is the only one who is holy. God is our rock. There is no one like our God.
verse 2 holds forth for us truth about who God is that every Christian should know. Do we pray that back to God in praise? Do we praise God for who he is? I would bet that if I asked everyone in this room, you could tell me true things about who God is. God is the one true God. God is holy. God is love. Now, each of those things are worth praising God for whenever we think of them. It's our joy to praise God for who he is, for what he is like. It's oftentimes helpful for us to ask as we read our Bibles, what does this passage tell us about God? And after we answer that question, what does this passage tell us about God? Let's praise God for that truth about who he is. One good place to start using God's word to praise him for who he is is in the Psalms. Hannah's song sounds like it would fit right in the book of Psalms as well and can be prayed back to God. I want to quote a paragraph from Donald Whitney's helpful book called Praying the Bible. He writes, For our good and his glory, God wants us to praise him. And indeed, all those indwelled by his spirit yearn to praise him. We have no way of knowing what sort of praises are worthy of our glorious God. So he revealed in the Psalms the praises that express the yearnings his spirit produces in us and which are appropriate for and consistent with his glory. And we pray the Psalms, therefore, we are returning to God words that he expressly inspired for us to speak and sing to him. So Whitney helpfully points out that God teaches us how to pray the words of the Bible. Prayers to God meant to be spoken and sung to him. And so we can pray God's word back to him and praise, saying along with Hannah, Lord, we praise you for there is no one like you. There is no rock like our God. So Christian, praise the only true God. Consider how you incorporate praise of God in your daily life. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for he is your savior. Second, God brings justice to the world. God brings justice to the world. We'll see this second point in verses 3 to 8. To begin this section, we see a warning to the proud because God is a God of justice. Then we see examples of God's justice. Look again at verse 3, we read, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Here we see that Hannah turns from praising God to rebuking the proud around her. The reason that they should not be speaking in such a proud and arrogant way is because the Lord is a just judge. What makes for a just judge? If a, if a judge with a good sense of right and wrong doesn't have all the facts, he's still not going to be able to judge justly. But the Lord has all knowledge. He has all the facts. He has every ability to judge justly. And God weighs the actions of people. God knows their hearts. God discerns whether we have 
whether what we have done is right or wrong. No human being can judge perfectly because no human being knows everything, but God does, and God will judge justly. In light of God's knowledge, God's discernment, in light of who he is, we as humans have no reason to be proud, do we? So often we're proud, we are, when we're proud, we're proud in a way that, that hides some of the facts. I suspect that Penina provoked Hannah out of an attitude of pride. But could Penina really take credit for being able to bear children when Hannah couldn't? Honestly, can any of us be proud of any of our accomplishments without first giving credit to the God who created us? Perhaps you're really good at math. Who created your brain? Perhaps you excel at a particular sport. Who created your body? Everything good that we have is from God. So we have every reason to be thankful, but no reason for pride or boasting. Continuing to verse 4, we see examples of God's justice. And we see that God's justice is not like the world's justice. We see that God works in bringing down the proud and lofty and raising up the low and the poor. This is so different than how justice or lack of justice so often works out in this world. And so we look again at verses 4 to 7 reading, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. In each of these situations, the Lord has the authority to, to judge as he pleases. The Lord has the authority to change these people's circumstances. It's interesting that by the time we get to the first part of verse 8, we don't simply see a contrast as in the phrases before, but Hannah continues to praise God for how he changes the plight of the poor and needy, saying, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Now, why is it that God can act in this way? Because at the end of verse 8, we read, For the pillars of the earth are the the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. God has the authority to act in this way because he owns the world. He created the world. God has every right to be the judge. So this matters because whatever situation we are in, we can trust God. He is the God of knowledge. He is the righteous judge. Whether you're weak or poor or barren, Whatever other difficulty you may have in your life, God is God over that situation. God knows and God sees. You see as well in these different examples that God judges out of a compassionate heart. 
You cannot say that the hungry deserve to be full or the barren woman deserves children or the poor deserve to sit with princes. But God looks on the weak in this world and God shows compassion. God delights in reversing roles. He delights in bringing down the rich and the proud and lifting up the lowly and the humble. And that is who your God is. So are you going through something difficult like Hannah going through barrenness? Perhaps you feel that you've been waiting on God for a long time. We read in chapter 1 that Hannah's barrenness, the trial of going up to the yearly sacrifice, was something that happened year by year. Hannah was in her suffering for a long time, but in the end, God brought about his justice for Hannah. God blessed Hannah with three more sons and two daughters. And God will bring about justice for us out of the goodness of his character. It might not look exactly like you might imagine, but you can trust that God truly is compassionate, gracious, and merciful in how he treats you. No matter the specifics of the situations you see around you now, we must be people who remember who God is. In verse 3, we're reminded that God is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God knows. He will not leave the wicked unpunished. They cannot hide their evil deeds. And at the end of verse 8, we read, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. God is the creator and ruler of the world. And even if it seems that God is allowing some wicked to go unpunished during their lives, we're reminded in verse 6 that God is God over life and death. There will be punishment for the wicked at death. The evil and corruption in this world will one day fully and finally be judged. If we see God lift the poor, or one other application as Christians we can make from this section is to consider, do we see the ways that God brings about justice and do we delight in those things? Do we praise God for those things? If we see God lift the poor out of poverty, do we delight in that? Sometimes I think that in certain Christian circles we can become a bit skeptical of social justice causes. We see groups of Christians supporting certain social justice causes and we want to shout out after them, don't forget to proclaim the gospel. And our mission as a church is a mission of proclamation. We are disciples of Jesus seeking to obey the Great Commission. We want to keep the main thing the main thing, but let's also check our own hearts. Do we have hearts of compassion for the weak and the poor? We see God's compassion on the lowest and most vulnerable in society over and over again throughout the scriptures. God cares for the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. So do we share in God's heart in caring for the weakest in society? So I would encourage us as members to discuss this with one another. What are helpful ways that we can care for the most vulnerable in our neighborhood and in our city? Perhaps some of you know of, of different opportunities to care for the least of these. And pray that, that God grows us in compassion.
It may be easy for us to have an attitude of pride or even backing away when we meet a poor beggar. But we must rid ourselves of whatever pride or disgust there is and be ready to rejoice if God in his great kindness lifts that poor beggar to sit with princes. Perhaps God may even choose to use some of us to help in that process. And if God does not lift that poor beggar to sit with princes in this life, if we're discouraged by the lack of change in circumstances we see around us now, we must remember that ultimately we're waiting for God to bring about justice in the end. And he will. So brothers and sisters, praise the only true God, for he brings justice to the world. Third, God will protect his people. God will protect his people. We see this third point in verses 9 and 10. We read in verse 9, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So who are the faithful ones? The faithful are those who follow God. God will protect them in contrast to the wicked who will be punished. The verse ends with a reminder that it is not by our own human might that we will prevail. Brothers and sisters, we are not mighty. We need God's protection and we can trust God to protect us. The wicked cannot harm us because they have no power compared to God's power to protect. God will guard your steps if you are in Christ. You are not walking through life alone, so praise God for that. One application from this verse is that our goal as Christians is not human strength, but continued faithfulness to God. Our goal is not mainly getting ahead of others in work, getting into a position of power and responsibility, but our goal is to work faithfully as unto the Lord. In regards to our physical bodies, our goal is not strength or looks in order to impress others, but that we, we be faithful stewards of the bodies God has given us. Human might is not what prevails. God is the one who guards those who are faithful to him. We keep reading in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. We see how God will continue to protect his people in this verse. God's enemies are also the enemies of his people, but God's enemies stand no chance against him. They shall be broken to pieces. God will thunder against them in heaven. What a grand picture of God's might. Satan and other forces of evil will one day be completely destroyed. All of the world will be under God's rule and reign. Just as Hannah's strength from the Hebrew word for horn in verse 1 is exalted in the Lord, so will the power, also the Hebrew word for horn, of God's anointed be exalted. This word horn is also 
repeated in David's song towards the end of 2 Samuel. Horn of salvation, you may have noticed that as well in uh, the scripture passage read earlier this morning. As God exalted Hannah in what seems like a small way, so will God exalt his anointed. We must ask the question, who is Hannah praising God for? First Samuel, as we have considered before, it comes right after the book of Judges in the history of Israel. The last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Going back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, God promised Abraham that kings would come from him. So perhaps Hannah saw the need for a king while remembering the promise of Abraham. And perhaps Hannah spoke better than she knew. The rest of the book of 1 Samuel helps us to answer the question, who is this king? Who is God's anointed that we read of at the end of verse 10? Who is this one who will deliver God's people from their enemies? Who is this one who will work salvation? Hannah's son Samuel would, at God's command, anoint the first two kings of Israel. We'll see over and over again the importance of being God's anointed king. But as scripture often is with the fulfillment of prophecy, there will be a partial fulfillment of that prophecy not too long in the future, but the greater fulfillment will have to wait for another thousand years. In 1 Samuel, we see God give a barren woman a child and she sings a prayer of praise to her Lord for his work. In the book of Luke, we see God give a virgin woman a child. And while the child is still much younger than little Samuel, while the child was still in her womb, this virgin woman sings out in praise to God. Perhaps you were wondering if we would get back to Christmas in this sermon. Well, here we are. Mary's song of praise to God bears a striking resemblance to Hannah's song of praise. One can imagine that Mary was familiar with Hannah's song, perhaps that inspired some of what she sang. Listen as I read Luke 1, verses 46 to 56. And see how the same mighty God who delivers his people in Hannah's time is the mighty God who delivers his people in Mary's time. Luke 1, 46 to 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. 
the themes of Mary's song echoes Hannah's song so much that we almost could take the same main point from Mary's song that we do from Hannah's song. We see these women praise God for what he did in their lives. We see God's justice in lifting up the poor and the weak. We see God's compassion. We see God's protection and deliverance of his people. And what is Mary praising God in response to? Mary's praising God because the fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy has come about. The angel had just said to Mary earlier in Luke chapter 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. When Mary sang her song of praise, God's anointed king was in her womb. Yes, God would give strength to David, and Hannah's son Samuel would anoint him. But the one who would sit on David's throne, the anointed king of all God's people, his name is Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the believers here at WSBC want to introduce you to our king, Jesus. Just as Hannah sang of God's salvation and Mary sang of God, her Savior, Christians sing of God's salvation because of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you're someone in need of salvation. But perhaps you may wonder what you need saving from. The God who created the world and everything in it rules over this world and deserves your worship. But instead, you and I have gone our own way, rejecting God, sinning against him with our actions and living proud, self-centered lives. Because of this, all of us deserve the punishment of death and internal punishment from God and hell. So we need saving from the punishment that we justly deserve. That is why King Jesus is so important for Christians. Even when we were wicked and in a state of rebellion against God, when we were enemies of God, God sent his son Jesus, fully God and fully man, the rightful king of the universe to live among us. And this king willingly took our sins upon himself and died as a substitute for us. God's wrath and punishment that should have been poured out on us was instead poured out on his son, Jesus. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit showed compassion to an undeserving people at the cross. The fact that King Jesus is offering you salvation is good news for you. Those of us who worship King Jesus in the room would love to talk to you more about this after the service. So brothers and sisters, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is such a wonderful reason to praise God all throughout the year. You and I can rest in God's protection because there is a kingdom and there is a king. As subjects of this king, we are protected. God will guard his faithful ones into eternity in his kingdom. Sickness and difficulty may happen before that day. But in the end, because of God's anointed king who died and rose again, we have a sure hope. We have salvation from the punishment that we deserve. So what a beautiful prayer.
What a beautiful song. What a beautiful prophecy we have here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. But let's be people who praise the only true God. There are so many reasons to praise him for who he is and what he has done. He is the one who brings justice to the world. He is the all-wise judge. His judgments are wonderful and perfect. And finally, praise God for his anointed king, Jesus, the true protector of his people. I'm not sure what Christmas songs might have been sung at that first Christmas in July summer camp. But perhaps they would have snuck in a classic Christian hymn or two. Even if the rest of the event sounded a bit fluffy. Many who have sung Christmas carols might not have thought long and hard about the lyrics. But there are good lyrics to old Christmas hymns that we can continue to consider, whether in December or the middle of the summer. So to close, let me quote one of those Christmas hymns. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for you are God. You are all wise, you are all knowing, you are just. You are compassionate. Lord, we pray that we would be people who are quick to praise you and that you would continue to open our eyes to your goodness, even at times when it may be difficult. Lord, would we also be quick to share of your goodness towards us with others? Lord, would you spur us on oh, to good works, and Lord, we thank you for your example of love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.